you may wonder, in a crowd as large as this, if your absence or presence means anything to anyone but yourself. But I want to tell you that Michael Card, who is as a son and as a younger brother to me, has been here for all of the Bible studies, but is not here this evening, and I'm aware of his absence. Michael left this afternoon at about 2.30 for ministry in Romania, where he'll be in concert on Saturday night. He'll be speaking three times in church services on the Lord's Day, and he will also have a session in the afternoon with musicians who are Christians in Romania. Then Monday, he will fly from Timisoara, Romania, to Belfast, Ireland, where he'll be with some friends and then be in concert once again. I invite uh, your prayers on his behalf. Uh, support our musicians, many of whom are absent from us for shorter and longer periods of time as God calls them for. I also want to share with you uh, that Andy, who sits in the front row whenever he can be here uh, with us, and his family faced a crisis a week ago. Uh, they discovered that their passports and their airline tickets, which are to be activated in mid-September for Bologna, were missing. He had been all up and down the East Coast. The options of where those tickets and passports were, were enormous. But Andy, under a guidance from the Lord, went back to a cabin where they had spent some time the week before. The cabin had been searched uh, by a gentleman who promised to look exactly for what they were missing, but he found nothing. But Andy was able to return following the Bible study. The tickets, the passports are in hand. How grateful to God we are for his provision uh, for that and for us. And thank you for representing us, Andy, so faithfully when we cannot join you in alone. You'll remember when we began our study that I described the gospel as a passion narrative with a long introduction and pointed out that the word passion comes from the Latin patio, which means that I suffer. Our word patience is a formation on that Latin root. And the past participle of patio is pasus, and all you do is lop off the ending, and you have the root for our word passion. Passion speaks of sufferings. The Apostle Paul said that he bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I'm not sure that I can claim that this night, but those who are sitting closer at least will see that I bear in my body certain marks, and I tried to become empathetic with the sufferings of Jesus by undergoing oral surgery on Thursday following our Bible study last week, and I'm only now beginning to recover. 
I want to focus attention, really, on what I consider to be a very exciting approach to the Passion of Jesus. So I simply want to walk you through, very quickly, the first page and a quarter, or almost three quarters, of the handout, and then concentrate on Scripture itself. It's obvious that the Passion narrative, which focuses on the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, his trial, his condemnation, his execution, furnishes a climax to the gospel and brings together certain motifs, certain themes that Mark has introduced earlier. The theme of conflict with authority was already introduced to us in chapter 2, 1 through 3, 5. And that culminated in the statement that the Herodians and the Pharisees took counsel together how they might put Jesus to death. And so we know from that early point on how the gospel will come to its climax. Very interesting, in the healing of the paralytic who was brought, the paralyzed man who was brought by four friends to Jesus and being unable to enter the house, how they broke through the flat roof and lowered the man into Jesus' presence. And when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, the biblical scholars of the day brought the charge that he had committed blasphemy. Now for us, blasphemy normally means taking the name of the Lord in vain. But blasphemy in a Jewish context meant engagement or a pronouncement that in any way detracted from the sovereign majesty of God. And that's why the biblical scholars said, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus demonstrated that he had the ability to forgive sins, they did not suddenly break out into the acclamation, surely God is in our midst. Although their charge was silenced. But already in 2.7, the basis of a capital crime, blasphemy, is introduced into the record. And when Jesus is condemned to death by the Sanhedrin, it is on the basis of the charge of blasphemy. Jesus spoke how the Son of Man would come upon the clouds, that he would return in sovereign glory. And the high priest tore his garments as a sign of the profound sorrow within his heart and said, this indeed is blasphemy. And already in the traditional list of the twelve, who Jesus chose because he wanted them to be with him, already we are introduced to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The betrayal of Jesus is built into the heart of the record. And when we turn to chapter 14, much is made at the very beginning of the account, and then again in the account of 
Gethsemane at a later point in chapter 14 with the betrayal of Judas. So already in the Galilean ministry, we have the introduction of themes that are then taken up and attached to the account of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, condemnation, and execution. Now, most biblical scholars recognize Mark almost certainly had access to a very primitive source that embodied authentic historical memory. And he took this source over virtually intact. What I've done for you at the bottom of item number A2 is I've given you the passages in the early sermons of Acts and in the letters of Paul that demonstrate that the key elements of the Passion narrative were already a part of the missionary proclamation and the nurture of the early church. Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested at night. He was led to the high priest. He was condemned by Pilate. He was crucified. He died on the cross, was buried, was raised from the dead, and his tomb was found empty. I suggest that you take the sheet home, look those passages up, and see how much of the Markan narrative belongs to the earliest ministry that we find on the part of the early church in Jerusalem and elsewhere. But there are certain parts of the account that are clearly Mark's contribution. That is, they are not found elsewhere. For example, the anointing of Jesus at Bethany, where undoubtedly the woman who anointed him with a precious ointment, probably a family heirloom that was passed from mother to daughter within a family line, where the word that Mark uses, spikenard, speaks of a root that grows at the base of the Himalayan mountains, brought over the great caravan route through Arabia, and then into the hands of a woman who lived in, Jer in Bethany or near Jerusalem. Mark draws our attention to this important account. The preparation of the meal. The flight of the young man. Very interesting. Mark alone tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane there was a witness. He was a young man who had an undergarment on. Almost certainly a self-portrait of Mark himself with the understanding that the Last Supper had taken place in the home of Mary of Jerusalem. A linen garment is a very expensive undergarment. It was almost certainly a young man in a family of wealth. And when they tried to lay hold, that is, the Roman soldiers tried to seize this young man, he spun around and fled away naked, only in Mark. The account of Simon of Cyrene, 
the father of Alexander and Rufus. Almost certainly persons currently within the church of Rome. Only in Mark. And then the courage of Joseph of Arimathea, who went into Pilate's presence and requested that the body of Jesus be given to him. For what Rome wanted to do with persons who were crucified was to add to the humiliation of crucifixion the humiliation of leaving the body on the cross where buzzards and vultures and wild beasts would tear at it. Joseph of Arimathea going before Pilate, a detail found in Mark. And then finally the detail of the surprise of Pilate that Jesus was so soon dead. Because frequently crucifixion, which was death by exhaustion, lasted for a period of two or three days. Those seem to be Mark's contribution, parallel and complementary traditions to those that we find in the early preaching and nurture of the early church. And it seems almost certain that it was in the context of worship that this primitive source began to be formed. You remember every time we celebrate the Lord's table. We read it was on the night in which Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and broke it and pronounced the blessing and distributed to those who were there. That focus upon the betrayal of Judas at the Last Supper was an invitation to reflection. And we have a document which you can be forgiven if you have never heard of it before, called the Epistle of the Apostles, dated to the middle of the second century, which speaks of an all-night vigil, which lasted until the dawn, during which the Passion of the Lord was remembered and talked about. This seems to be the setting in which the Passion narrative began to come together. It was built around a very primitive core. For in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians of what he had preached, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he says in verse 12, whether it was I or they, meaning the Jerusalem apostles, whether it was I in the Gentile mission or the Jerusalem apostles in the mission to the Jewish people, so we preached and so you believed. There was the primitive core around which these traditions began to cluster. You can think of a great magnet and all of the iron filings coming to cluster around the shape of that magnet. That's what seems to have happened there. Now Jesus had prepared the disciples and the church 
to understand the meaning of all that transpired by pointing to the sovereign will of God. And that was to point to the scriptures. It's almost certain that John the Baptist discovered his own vocation as he read the prophecy of Isaiah. I believe that's equally true of the Lord Jesus. As he poured forth over the prophetic scriptures, he found what God had marked out for him. And when he said, it is essential, the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the chief priests, the biblical scholars, the elders, and that he must be killed. Behind the must stands the word of Scripture. And I chose to give you a single example, the famous prophecy of the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, and particularly in verses 4 through 12. Here is an account of obedient suffering, expressed by the sustaining of mockery, by silence before your accusers, by the expression of forgiveness, by intercession on behalf of the many, by burial with the condemned, in short, a passion narrative, which described God's action which astonished us. Why, when we looked at him, he was so disfigured, we didn't even recognize him as a man. And yet, which manifested God's triumphant sovereignty. And you will find in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 22, Psalm 41, Psalm 69, Psalms of the suffering and the victorious righteous one who trusts the Lord, the details of which anticipate the passion narrative. Now, Mark's arrangement of chapters 14 and 15 falls into two parts. In 14, 1 through 52, you have the complementary themes of the plot to seize Jesus and the willingness of Judas to betray him. And there Mark focuses on the sufferings which came to Jesus through betrayal and desertion on the part of those who were the closest to him. You remember when they gathered at the Lord's Supper? Jesus announced to the astonishment of those who were gathered there, one who sits at the table, one who reclines at the table with me will betray me. And they all look at one another, they look at Jesus and they say, surely not I. And then you remember after they left the upper room and they're going to cross the Kidron Valley toward Gethsemane, Jesus said, this night all of you will abandon me. All of you will desert me. And you remember Peter's bold protestation. Why, they may all abandon you, but surely not I. Surely 
not I. And the subsequent denial of Peter, the threefold denial, the subsequent desertion of Jesus as each one recedes into the night, concerned only with his own personal safety, confirms the discernment of Jesus as he spoke of the striking of the shepherd and the sheep being scattered. And then from 1453 through chapter 15 to its very end, which records the burial of Jesus, you have an emphasis upon Jesus' absolute endurance of the sufferings of the cross and all of the humiliation and shame that was associated with it. Now, what's interesting about Mark's account of the Passion narrative is that he brings together two elements that are brought together in no other gospel. The tearing of the great curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the confession of the centurion, surely this man was son of God. Matthew picks up the confession, but not the tearing of the curtain which was an enormously thick garment. And it's torn from the top to the bottom. It's not something that 20 or 30 men can grab hold of and tear from the bottom up. This is the action of God. And in this way, Mark shows that Judaism and the Gentile world is united in acknowledging the dignity of Jesus even in the moment of his death. In that way, Mark exposes the profound efficacy, the redemptive efficacy of the death of the Son of God who freely laid down his life on behalf of the many. I've now twice this evening used that expression, the many. It's a biblical expression. But it's an expression that means the whole redemptive community. It's an expression informed by the Old Testament where the many refers to all of God's redeemed people, all of his elect ones. The Son of God laid down his life on behalf of the many. And those who listened to Mark's passion narrative found themselves urged to stand with the confessing church and to confess by faith that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, with this as a background, I'd like to suggest to you that we need some fresh perspectives by which to grasp the passion, the sufferings of our Lord. Our problem is we have become too familiar with the facts. They no longer disturb us. They no longer shake us. 
to our very roots. Many of us tend to live out our lives between cups of coffee. We find it difficult to begin the day without a morning cup. And some of us go so far as to measure our life in terms of our coffee. We have a cup in the morning. We speak of taking a coffee break at mid-morning. Perhaps another cup at noon, and certainly one in the evening, the final cup of the day. And I'd like to suggest to you that thinking in terms of cups of coffee can help us to enter into Mark's account with empathy as he focuses upon a most critical period in Jesus' life. Because what we find in Mark is Jesus measuring his life in terms of four cups. The cup of redemption, the cup of promise, the cup of death, and the cup of wrath. A reference to the cup remains constant, but we find ourselves in the presence of a very different imagery than that suggested by cups of coffee. Now, the context for appreciating the significance of the cup of redemption and the cup of promise is the celebration of the Passover, the feast of redemption. And we find written in Mark 14 and verse 12 these words. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? What follows is an account of the going of two of the disciples into the city where they are given a code that allows them to proceed to prepare the meal for that evening. There was a public notice, John tells us, that if anyone came across Jesus, Ananus was to be informed. It's like a wanted poster that appears on every telephone pole on Church Street, that appears at the square in town, that appears at every crossing in the heart of Franklin. If you see this man, make certain that you report his whereabouts. And Jesus says, you're to go into the city, and there you'll find a man carrying a water jar. I hope you recognize the fact men do not carry water jars. Women do. So the sight of a man carrying a water jar was a marvelous indication that here was something out of the usual. You are to follow him. So without a word being exchanged, they were able to go and find the location of the home of Mary of Jerusalem where they prepared the meal 
and what follows is an account that we call the Last Supper. Now Mark wants us to know, he assumes we know something about the Passover. And in case you've never had the privilege of attending a Passover meal, let me quickly run through what happens on the evening of Passover. Once those who are participating have taken their place around the table, the head of the household began the celebration by pronouncing a blessing of God, who gave this festival of redemption to his people, and then pronouncing of a blessing upon God who gave wine. And wine was poured into a little cup, and the first of four cups of wine was drunk. Now after this, the food was brought in and placed upon the table. It consisted of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, greens, stewed fruit, and roast lamb. And then one of the sons would ask his father, in what way is this night different than every other night, in that we recline rather than sit, with its special foods and its special customs? And the family head would respond by recalling the biblical account of the redemption from Egypt. And that instruction naturally led into the praise of God for the redemption he had provided and in anticipation of future redemption. What was said was on this night we were, we were redeemed and on this night we will be redeemed. There was every expectation that it was in connection with a Passover that God would bring the final salvation to his people. You can only imagine then how intense were the expectations, the excitement that welled up within the men and women who gathered as the family gathered around the table. The family head would say, and so may the Lord our God and the God of our fathers cause us to enjoy the feasts that come in peace glad of heart at the building of your city and rejoicing in your service. And we shall thank you with a new song for our redemption. That was an invitation for the table company to sing the first half of the famous Hallel Psalms, 113 to 118. You sang Psalm 113, 114, and one. 15. And then a second cup of wine was filled, and those at the table drank it. Then the head of the family would take the unleavened bread, and he'd pronounce over it a blessing of the Lord. And he would break the bread in pieces and hand it to those at the table who ate it with the bitter herbs and the steamed fruit. Only then did the meal really begin with the eating of the roast lamb. And when the meal had been completed, 
the head of the family blessed the third cup with a prayer of thanksgiving. And then you would sing the second half of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 116, 117, and 118, and you would fill the fourth cup. And with the drinking of the fourth cup, the meal was concluded. Now Mark concentrates all of his attention upon two incidents. He concentrates upon the word of the betrayal. The betrayer is the one who will dip in the bowl of the bitter herbs with Jesus. That is, he is the one who is seated next to Jesus. We know that there was the beloved disciple, almost certainly the disciple John, the son of Zebedee, who leaned against Jesus' chest. He was the first at the city. And then came Jesus, and the person to the left of Jesus had the seat of honor. That place was occupied by Judas, and where the bowl of bitter herbs would serve three, John, Jesus, Judas, dipped into that bowl. I believe in assigning Judas the place of honor, Jesus was giving him one more opportunity to think about what he was about to do. If that place to the left was reserved for the friend of the head of the household, the friend of the host. Isn't it interesting that when Judas comes to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there has been a prearrangement between Judas and the soldiers who accompany him from the temple guard. It's the one whom I will kiss on the cheek as a sign of reverence. He's the one you are to seize. What does Jesus say? Friend. The friend of the head of the family. Mark concentrates attention upon that. The other detail that Mark concentrates on are the Passover devotions. The breaking of the bread and the significance of the bread and the drinking of that third cup, which was the cup of wine. Now here's the interesting fact. Search Exodus 12, which is the first account of the Passover, and you will find no references to cups of wine. Search all of the references in the Old Testament to the celebration of the Passover, for example, the celebration during the time of King Josiah. No reference to cups of wine. The introduction of cups of wine was a relatively new innovation that came sometime after the ministry of Malachi, Haggai, and Zechariah. But by the time of the first century, by the time of Jesus, it was an integral part of the Passover celebration as it is to this day. Because it was an innovation, the rabbis had to find some justification for it in the pages of the Old Testament. 
and they turn to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6 and 7. There they found four verbs, and they associated the four cups of wine with the four promised actions of the Lord. Now, in my Bible, the New, in our New International Version, it says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And we hear the verb to be. But in the Hebrew text, it simply says, I, the Lord. You don't have to use the verb to be, and there is no verb in the Hebrew text there. The verbs follow that initial sentence. I am the Lord. Cup number one. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Cup number two. I will free you from being slaves to them. Cup number three. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Cup number four. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Do you remember? You begin the meal with the first cup of wine, and then the meal celebrates the second cup of wine, and only then is the meal shared. What do we hear on the occasion of celebrating the Lord's Supper? It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed after they had shared meal fellowship. So it is the third cup that Jesus takes and says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of your sins. It is called by the rabbis the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption, and associated with the word, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Then what Jesus did was a surprising action, because all that remained was to take the fourth cup, to sing the last of the Hallel Psalms, and to leave the building. The meal was over. But Jesus says, I solemnly swear to you, I will not drink from this cup until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. That solemn word was a holy vow that Jesus would do the will of God and he would keep his commitment to you and to me as he took the burden of the judgment that should have fallen upon us and took it to himself. His vow, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom, was a solemn pledge. All that God intended for the many will be fulfilled. 
when will Jesus take the fourth cup? When we gather at that great messianic banquet at the end of the age, no wonder the word has been preserved that Jesus said, Blessed are those who break bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, that fourth cup was associated with the word, I will take you as my people, and you will know that I am your God. Now, what does that mean? It means that that Passover meal was never completed. It means that you and I live in an interim time between the cup of redemption and the cup of promise. It means the sacred promise that I will come and receive you, that you might be where I am, will surely be fulfilled. It is a wonderful assurance that is given to us. That's why in the early church, they would say, root out the old leaven, the yeast of malice and insincerity. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us keep a festival of redemption. Let us live as the people who are excited with all of the promises that are associated with the Passover and with the promise that on this night we were redeemed and on this night we will be redeemed. The cup of redemption and the cup of promise. What about the cup of death? For that, we have to go back to, to Mark chapter 10. Well, do you remember that Jesus announced to his disciples that they were going up to Jerusalem? He said in Mark 10, 33, 34, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. James and John, in that context, speak of wanting to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. And Jesus says to them, Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with? Surely that's not a reference to the cup of redemption or the cup of promise. The meaning of sharing in the cup of Christ is defined by the words, we're going up to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man will be betrayed. There he will be condemned to death. There he will be handed over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. It is the cup of death. And you will remember that to share in a common cup in the first century was the pledge to share a common destiny. Jesus says, Son of Man means Jesus of Nazareth. Does it mean James 
and John, sons of Zebedee? How quickly they say, yes, we're able to drink from your cup. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not for me to say. It is left in the Father's authority. That that was a reference to the cup of death is clear. From the martyrdom of Polycarp in the middle of the second century, where you remember that aged pastor of the church of Smyrna, who had been secreted out of the city on the occasion of a festival celebrating the birthday of the emperor, His location was finally determined through the torture of two Christians, and soldiers were sent to bring Polycarp in before the governor of the province. When they found Polycarp, he was in prayer. And this is what he prayed. I bless you, Lord, because you have counted me worthy among the number of the martyrs to share in the cup of Christ. The cup of Christ is none other than the cup of death. Well, what about Gethsemane, where we're introduced to the image of the cup once more? The account is in Mark 14, 32 to 42. And there we read twice about the cup. There we read that after Jesus had separated Peter, James, and John and cautioned them, sit here while I pray. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. That he went a little further and fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, that's not the cup of death. Jesus freely embraced that the will of God was for him to die on behalf of the many. It is none other than a reference that occurs again and again in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures, the cup of God's wrath. For example, in Psalm 75, in the first seven verses, you have a description of judgment. And then in verse 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Or Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup, filled with a cup of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad. 
or one other reference, Ezekiel 23:32. You will drink a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. It is the cup of ruin and of desolation. You will drink it and drain it dry. Now, in all of these passages, it's clear that those who are extended the cup of God's wrath are those to whom it is appropriate to extend it. What would be inappropriate would be to extend it to one who did the will of God perfectly. I believe that that's what Jeremiah had in mind when at a later point in his prophecy he spoke of what would be entirely inappropriate. Namely, that one who was wholly worthy of the deepest blessing of God would be the one who would drink from this cup. The passage is Jeremiah 49, verse 12. This is what the Lord says, if those who do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, why should you go unpunished? Why indeed? Mark's answer is, because Jesus interposed himself between the wrath of God and the judgment that should have fallen upon us. That's what the Passion Narrative is all about. What an act of supreme grace that he who was wholly worthy should drink the cup on our behalf. That's what the cry of dereliction from the cross is all about. My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Where the face of God, as it were, becomes blurred or seems to be scowled. And for a moment, God the Father turns his back on Jesus. And darkness spreads all over the land. There's an intimate connection between that darkness and the death of Jesus. Do you remember at the birth of Jesus why the night sky became filled with light? And at the death of Jesus, at noonday, at the height of the sun, the day became his night. Amos spoke about these matters. The prophet Amos said, in essence, the time is coming when darkness will spread over the land. It's Amos 8, verse 9 and 10. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads 
I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it a bitter day. It was a bitter day. The disciples all fled. Mary's heart was broken. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. And why? Because he embraced the cup of wrath and drained it to its dregs that you and I might never have that cup extended toward us. In fact, our privilege in sharing the cup of redemption and of looking forward to the drinking from the cup of promise is because Jesus drained to its dregs the cup of death and the cup of wrath. Have you ever thanked him? Have you ever been shaken to your roots? Knowing that he who deserved only the highest affluence, only the deepest gentleness and tenderness interpose for us. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you cared for us so profoundly to send us your Son and that he drank to its dregs the cup of death that he emptied the cup of God's wrath that could have been extended to us. Thank you for your grace that instead we gather around the cup of redemption and we confess to one another. We drink this cup, declaring that the Lord's death was for us until he comes, and we shall drink from the cup of promise. Now bless us as we reflect upon these matters. In Jesus' name.